transmission by me, Donald Dean. Make me an island. Music from uh, 1968 and the Studio One label produced by Cox and Dodd and that's by Cables. Uh, it's the work of Kebel Drummond and uh, read a little nice piece that he said he chose the name because he was looking at Cables and thinking it was a good way to send messages out into the world through the Cables. Uh, like that. So that's it. Uh, the tune is called Why and that caused quite a sensation in 1968 and Today, on Make Me an Island, number 19, uh, I'm going to be telling you the story of the Gladiators, which begins in 1968, and uh, it's the story of the Gladiators and their Studio One years, so all the way up to um, 1976. And I'm going to be doing that in the company of a man called Carl Finley, who has been doing pretty astonishing work um, collecting and uh, making uh, recordings and digitising the Studio One back catalogue and 
currently uh, writing and researching a book on the same. So I'm going to be talking to Carl a little bit later on, on today's episode. And in the second half, uh, I'm also going to be talking to a choreographer and dancer and one of my favourite artists, Una Doherty, about her work on uh, the amazing new video for Jamie XX, as well as uh, her uh, excellent and uh, incredible performance on the girl band video, Shoulder Blades. Uh, one of the things that I learned um, in my week off uh, doing Make Me an Island was that I said the word incredible, a somewhat incredible, nine times in episode 14. So I'm going to have to um, watch my words. Uh, it reminds me of, uh, there's no one stopping me, that's the problem, and uh, which reminds me of a story a friend of mine told me that he overheard in a bar about somebody talking about how far Selviano Ballesteros, the golfer, could hit the ball. And uh, somebody quipped, well, why, sure, why wouldn't he? But no one marking him. Uh, so it's kind of the same with me, with uh, nobody here to stop me saying the word incredible. But I'm going to try to uh, stop in this episode number 19. Before we get to Jamaica, I want to take a trip further down the Caribbean Sea and spend some time in Trinidad. <laughs> Yeah. 
Once you dip your toes in the beautiful warm waters of the Caribbean Sea around Trinidad and Tobago, it's very hard to turn back, turn turn away. So uh, for the uh, first portion of this edition of Make Me Island, uh, we're going to uh, remain right there. And that's the sound of Lord Composer and the Silver Seas Orchestra and a wonderful uh, tune called Hill and Gully Ride. Mandeville Road. Uh, now I'm going to um, talk a little bit about uh, the origins of these recordings in a little while, but um, seeing as we're in the area, and uh, if you look at the map, uh, Trinidad is just a very short hop across the way from Venezuela. There's lots of Spanish influence in these tunes, and uh, so I'm going to continue now with one called The Lizard. <laughs> Thank you. 
such a beautiful piece of music and uh, so interesting and inventive sonically. Um, it's called The Lizard and that's taken from an album called uh, In the Explorer series on the uh, Nonsuch Electra label um, and that one is called West Indian West Indies, uh, an island carnival. And the Explorer series um, is uh, very much uh, along with uh, something I've been telling you about, I think the last time we spoke on the show, um, a series called The Secret Museum of Mankind on the Shanakee label, uh, distributed by Mississippi Records. There's eight volumes in that one. And in both cases, uh, both the Explorer series on the Nonsuch label and the Secret Museum of Mankind, um, the music is uh, basically uh, recordings uh, taken from 78-inch uh, records from the late 20s throughout the 30s and uh, and some of the 40s as well, uh, up until the advent of tape recording, basically. And it is uh, one of um, the good leg- legacies of colonialism in that uh, the countries that were uh, capable of producing those recordings uh, very often at colonial holdings in the countries that they were making them in. And um, such is the case uh, with the music from uh, the uh, the West Indies in the Caribbean Isles and further down like Trinidad. And uh, so that is one that you just heard right there from Trinidad. Now the next one comes from the same Explorer series, but uh, we squ- uh, skip uh, the island of Tobago, and we get to Grenada. And this sound is... Uh, the thing that's so refreshing about hearing these recordings is how unaffected they are by anything to do with professionalism or competitiveness or anything to do with image or anything um, that uh, those concerns that are very much part and parcel of um, recorded music as we know from uh, the 50s, 1950s onwards. Uh, So again, another example of that pure drop from the island of Grenada. And this is Mr. Walker played on the Coco lute. Coco lute is an instrument that appears only in Grenada and there's a few examples on the Explorer series West Indies, uh, an island carnival and that right there is called Mr. Walker from the same. Uh, So I think it's probably fitting that on the uh, 19th episode of Make Me an Island that uh, we start by island hopping around the Caribbean. But we're going to go to the next one now that's one up and this is from St. Vincent. And it's Pindo, Mama Pindo. Mama Pindo, yeah. 
the island of St. Vincent in the West Indies. Uh, That's the sound of Pindo, Mama, Pindo. And in that Explorer series that I'm talking about, there's two uh, records in particular. Um, Having just gone through all the vinyl, I've just started to scratch the surface of uh, the CD mountain. And I uh, discovered, rediscovered those. So there's two, right? There's the Caribbean island music, and then there's West Indies and Island Carnival, and all field recordings from the 20s, 30s and 40s. So we're going to go next door uh, to St. Vincent now, to Barbados. At the last time we were there with Make Me an Island, uh, we were talking about Exuma and the Obeya band. So here's Valerie Walker's talk, uh, take on the same. A man come here for quote me. Him say me no nobody. Him give me one cocky iPhobie. Me take his bicycle and satin. Me wash him, me starch him, me irony. Me hang him pumping ring marker. The greedy and conscionable junko. Him come here for jewelry a galande. No Ali Jeremiah no Ali. No Ali Jeremiah. My you want me to go fall down, but my belly pantambarina. How are you there, real on me? How are you there, real on me? You want me to go fall down, but my belly pantambarina. My hope your man come here to quote me. Me say me no nobody. He give me one cocky iPhobie. Me take it by silk and satin. Me washy, me touchy, me ironi, me pretty pumping ring marker, degree and cashnable junker, sin techie there, all your galande. 
No Holly Jeremiah no Holly. No Holly Jeremiah no Holly. You want me to go fall down? Brought me belly pantambarina. How are you? They relant on me. How are you? They relant on me. You want me to go fall down? Brought me belly pantambarina. Na 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 na. You want me to go fall down? Brought me belly pantambarina. Representing the island of Barbados in our Caribbean cruise here on Make Me an Island number nineteen. Uh, that's Valerie Walker and her take on the Obey a Man. And uh, there's a number of Valerie Walker tune, uh, tunes on that uh, Explorer series in the Caribbean. And each one of them as wonderful as the next. Uh, now we're going to continue our uh, trip, inching our way towards Jamaica and the sound of uh, the 1970s sound of the Gladiators. But we're going to stop off next on Martinique and what I love about all of this music from that part of the world is just the many different flavours, Spanish, African and so on and so forth and then there's so much invention in terms of instruments so you have uh, uh, like what we just heard there uh, a few minutes ago uh, the sound of the coco lute which is indigenous to Grenada and uh, lots of variations on the pipes and then we hear things like the fiddle and the accordion on this one, merengue from Martinique It's a Make Me an Island special, more or less, comprised of music from the Caribbean Isles so far. And that right there uh, from Martinique and uh, beautiful Merengue 
And like I was saying, so much invention going on sonically in these recordings. Uh, we're going to take a skip over a few more to get to the Dominican Republic as we edge our way slowly towards Jamaica. And this one right here is called Masuk. <laughs> Thank you. 
city of Santiago in uh, the Dominican Republic. That's the sound of Masuk, and again taken from the Explorer series on the non-such label. And uh, that collection of music, in fact, it spans several continents and uh, it's just the tip of the iceberg, uh, the Caribbean uh, editions. And there's two of those from which I've been sampling uh, on the program today. And that's uh, one called An Island Carnival and the sound of the West Indies. Uh, Before we get back up to Jamaica, I'm going to go back down, if I may, to Trinidad for one more from the wonderful Lord Composer. Yes, well friends, nowadays is only two things you can hear. How the money gets scarce and the things so awful dear. No food to eat, no where to live, no money to we spend. Me no know how we going to live in or this your hard time. Say, what a hard time, oi, what a hard time. Me no know how we going to live in or this your hard time. If you go into a store and to buy a pair of shoes, when them tell you the prices, sometimes you feel confused. You squeeze the money till it's hot and you count it 20 times. Me not know how we going to live in a this your hard time. Oh, what a hard time. What a hard time. Me not know how we going to live in a this your hard time. Now look for selfish mackerel shot here in an old big steel. When I think upon the prices, a semi-heart won't feel. And everything you can think of that we got to buy. Lordy time it is dreadful, friends, me no off it tell no lie. Say, what a hard time, what a hard time. Me no know how we going to live in a this your hard time. strong that it reached quite in my bed. When we got to sleep, Nora lay down like she did. She turned her back on me with her face turned to the wall. And if me I never touch her, you'd hear around Nora ball. What a hard time, oh what a hard time. Me no know how we going to live in a this your hard time. Now if you feed my selfish mackerel, the herring and the shad. It serves no useful purpose cause it makes the blood get bad. Send out all kind of pimples, some of them big like a any lump. And when the girl them look in a glass, then say a love bump. Oh, what a hard time. What a hard time. Me no know how we going to live in a this year hard time. Hard times in the city. Some words that resonate there from Lord Composer. That's the Ballad of the Hard Times. And we're going to be going back to Trinidad very soon for a deeper Make Me an Island investigation. Uh, But I hope you enjoyed our trip around the Caribbean to open the show today. The next subject is our our main topic today is the music of the Gladiators. And uh, the album uh, that I'm referring to is an album called Presenting the Gladiators, which is basically their work for the Studio One label, Cox and Dodd's label. And uh, the music spans from 1968, that key year, up until round about 1976. 
But uh, because there was an ever-changing lineup and uh, some variations between each of the individual recording sessions, I'm going to get the expertise of Mr. Carl Finley, a man who knows a thing or two about Studio One, to talk to me in just a little while. But before that, a quick rapid-fire round of amazing Gladiators tunes. Well, the 
fact that the recordings happened uh, over a period of six years maybe in really no way diminishes, I think, uh, the power of that single album presenting the Gladiators. And uh, that's that's them in great effect there, Rainy Night in Georgia. It all started in 1968, the breakthrough single, Hello, Carol. Breakthrough 1968, a massive hit for the Gladiators. That's Albert Griffiths on the vocals, and uh, it was his band and his beautiful voice that powered the whole project. Uh, later added to by Clinton Fearon, and I'm going to find out more in just a little while uh, from Carl about those uh, changes and so on. Uh, for now, I'm going to keep going with the amazing music on presenting the Gladiators, very much on the uh, spiritual side on the other side. Ever grow 
Albert Griffiths, one of the most beautiful things I know, and the music of the Gladiators, uh, particularly that they made on Studio One in that period. I put it up there, I think, with Burning, Se- uh, Burning Spear, whom we f- uh, featured on the programme a little while ago. And uh, I'm just going to continue and play uh, one more before uh, I talk to Carl Finley about uh, some of the story behind some of this music. But this one, this next one, again, all the tunes from presenting the Gladiators. And I should say at this point that uh, these uh, this music has been and is available uh, on a reissued edition, uh, on a remastered edition, I should say, uh, on Bandcamp presenting the Gladiators. So uh, easily found there. Um, so this one is called Roots, Natty Roots. I should have been, but not until this 
stand up, fight for our right. Red love, the time is now. Stand up, fight for your right. Or you ain't gonna get your culture, man. Roots not good, don't be both. Oh, no. If I am wrong, be not afraid to say so. Is there any difference between black and white? We are all of one skin. Same blood, same soul. But there are some who think dreadlocks don't count. Dreadlocks, the time is now. Stand up, fight for your right. Or you ain't gonna get your culture, man. That's um, that's from the Gladiators presenting the Gladiators uh, once more. Albert Griffiths on uh, the vocals, and on the telephone from Malaga, our honorary Studio One correspondent Carl Finley. Uh, you're very welcome to the show, Carl. Thanks, Donal. It's an honour and a pleasure to be invited on. Thank you. Well, look, I, I want to talk to you about your incredible work uh, on the archive and the Studio One story in depth at a later date. But today. Um, we're concentrating on the gladiators and I suppose the thing to say about them is that it, it in terms of the music that's on this record presenting the gladiators it spans uh, from the single Hello Carol 1968 uh, right up to music that was mostly recorded between 1972 and 1977 um, so I suppose the first question is um, throughout that time they were also recording for Treasure Isle as well as other labels. So uh, the Studio One system was kind of fluid in, in all sorts of ways, right? Uh, you mean in terms of band lineup? And a, a band lineup and then also the contract situation? Um, I guess it was. Uh, I, I don't think the Gladiators did a whole lot of work outside of Studio One with that period. They did work, did record for Duke Reed. Um, I think it's 1968, around the same time as they had their first major hit, which was uh, uh, Hello Carol, which is recorded towards the end of the year in 1968. Um, and that was with the Sound Dimension, the Studio One band at the time called the Sound Dimension. And it was a massive hit as Rocksteady was turning into reggae. 
Um, at the time, they were a vocal trio. They didn't play their own music. They just were a harmony group with um, Albert Griffiths, David Weber, and a guy called Earl Grandison. Yeah. Um, they, they lost David Weber shortly after that, and they were kind of in limbo. They did a handful of recordings, but um, they really came into their element around 1972 when they came back to Studio One with um, Clinton Ferron as one of the members and that's when they made songs like um, Bongo Red and uh, Jaja Go Before Us. And it would have been, at that time, Pablo Black, Bagel Walker, a guy called Zada and a guy called Saul. They were the band, the, the, music, the, the musical group at Studio One at the time. And yeah. um, uh, the Gladiators then obviously got a bit of money out of Coxon and they invested that money into buying their own instruments. And um, so... Uh, Albert uh, became a guitarist, Clinton took up the bass and they recruited some other musicians, Winston Carty is on drums, Clinton Rufus on lead guitar and a guy called Audley Taylor on key keyboards yeah. and um, that's when they became their own um, you know, self-contained musical group yeah. and what's, what's interesting is around that time they set up um, a kind of a a musical school um, in a, in the Olympic Way area. It's in Western Kingston near um, Waterhouse. And yeah. It was like a, a ghetto academy where they would have, um, you know, local talent would have come there and they would have rehearsed with the gladiators and the gladiators would have helped them with their arrangements. And then they would have brought local artists to Studio One to record and back and the gladiators became began backing up these artists. The yeah. first recording would have been um, uh, with a guy called Mr. Manchester, a song called um, Selassie Band Bandwagon. Yeah. Um, that was their first recording as a group at, a, at Studio One. Yeah. Just tell us a little bit about the scene in, in the mid-70s in Studio One, um, Carl. Um, I know from talking to you that that period, particularly 1968, is the kind of key uh, year in terms of the music, the amount of music that you love coming from. But by the mid seventies, what was going on there? Well, the things were uh, Studio One's heyday had kind of passed, to be honest. By that time, um, the, between like nineteen sixty eight and nineteen seventy, in particular, um, Studio One was. I think some of the most beautiful music that was ever created came out of Studio One during that period, and a lot of it was produced or engineered by a guy called Sylvan Morris. Um, by the mid '70s, Sylvan Morris had left, and he he went to Harry J's studio, and other other studios popped up like Channel One and Joe Gibbs had a studio, and they began to dominate. and And in a way, Coxon. Um, in a way, he didn't really keep up with the times in terms of um, updating his equipment, and um, mm -hmm. so they kind of they, they kind of lagged behind a little bit. Studio but, uh, Studio One kind of started to lag behind a little bit, but yeah. there's what, still an incredible amount of magic in, in those yeah, recordings. Yeah, I was just going to say, while still making incredible music all the time, just on on the Coxon situation, um, Carl, and uh, I appreciate very much you pointing out after many years of saying Cox own that it's Coxon. <laughs> so um, don't want to sound like Donald Trump or anything. But listen, um, so we, we, we never. So I just read a little interview, a big interview, actually, that Albert Griffiths gave with um, reggae vibes about uh, the entire Gladiator's career. And just on the point of, of him and Coxon, because, you know, the, I mean, 
legend has it, and I know you know a lot more about this than I do, but um, he's, uh, he, he invariably fell out with, with all of the artists that he um, recorded with or had in his studio. Uh, so this is Albert Griffiths talking. We never leave Coxon Studio One. No time at all. Don't believe what you see or go on. Me and Coxon always have a thing going on. We're always recording for Coxon. Always. Anytime him see me, him always. What happened? Come do a song. Of all the artists that have worked at Studio One, I think it is I, the only artist who have worked with him and have never had a fuss with him. So uh, that would appear to kind of uh, indicate that he bucked the trend. Um, I, I think that there's a myth around how uh, Coxon mistreated so many people or so many people have bad feelings. Of course, there are, I've spoken to a lot of people and there are certain people who who have bad feelings or feel like they weren't paid enough or didn't get their dues. But uh, in a way, it's been blown out of all proportion. And there's so many people who um, are very thankful to Mr. Dodd for the opportunity he gave them. And it's, they saw it as a kind of a musical school. And he, he, he and a lot of the musicians, all of the musicians that worked at Studio One did get paid and they were paid a salary. And like, for example, Pablo Black, who was recording at that time, like he's got nothing but praise for Mr. Dodd and Freddie McGregor, who was around that time, too. And um, Clinton Ferrin, when I of the Gladiators, when I interviewed him, he didn't have anything bad to say about Mr. Dodd. And um, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a difficult area, really. Um, I know. But... And, and and full of myth making as well. You know, I mean, this story, the whole story, which is where you come in, Carl, to tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for pointing that out. Just on Clinton yeah. Ferrin, right? Um, yeah. I, I, one of the interesting things that I read about Albert Griffiths was that he was a stonemason and um, knowing Lee Scratch Perry's origins in the same uh, sort of uh, quarrying business, I, I found that really interesting. But um, Clinton Ferrin was also a mason and maybe that's how they met. Would you be able to clarify that? Um, well, Clinton didn't um, didn't mention that to me. Um, he told me that uh, he came to Kingston. He's from the countryside, and that he came to Kingston. And um, one of the other members, Earl Grandison, heard him singing. And at that point, they'd lost one of the other members, and that's how he was recruited into the band. I know the interview you're referring to, and it, it doesn't quite correspond to what, at least what Clinton related to me. Okay. But I know that, I know that Clinton is an incredibly uh, creative person, even from a young age. He grew up in the countryside, and he was telling me how he made, he made a flute out of a bamboo, and he made other horns out of pumpkin stalks, and even even made his own guitar out of a the bark of a cedar tree and his creativity. I, I want to say this because um, Clinton, I feel, is hasn't got the exposure or the appreciation that he deserves. I think he's one of the, the greatest songwriters come out of Jamaica and he's still on the go, still touring. He's got a large fan base in mainland Europe and in America and he's very active on Facebook and YouTube. Yeah. And he's a type of he's a type of artist that would I think would go down really well in Ireland because he does this acoustic show and it's he's just got this uh, raw uh, passion and he's a true craftsman wow. and um yeah. Well, that's a beautiful description. And I think um, it's a good place to leave the chat for now, Carl. It's been so great talking to you. Um, so we're, I'm going to play Downtown Rebel now. And, and Clinton is uh, takes the lead vocals again here. That's Clinton. All right. Yes. Um, just before we go, there is something about this record that I wanted to ask you. Um, I mean, one of the most phenomenal things about this tune for me is the drums. And is there uh, some debate about who is the drummer on this? 
Well, that's something I need to clear up. I'd like to. I need to give Clinton a call. There's a few questions I'd like to ask him about that record. Um, it's. I would say it's Winston Carty, but I'm not sure. To me, it sounds like, like it could be Horsemouth who was doing a lot of drinking okay, yeah. at the time. Okay. Thanks. It, thanks so much, Carl. Um, he's one of the Carties of Kingston, obviously. Uh, one of the one of the many Irish <laughs> names you see popping yeah. up in the. Record. I know. We'll pick up where we left off uh, very soon. Thanks again, Carl Finley. Here's the Gladiators.
Winston of the Carties or Horsemouth on the percussion either way it's a drumming masterclass on the wonderful Downtown Rebel by the amazing Gladiators and uh, for me presenting the Gladiators uh, driven uh, by Albert Griffiths is uh, a pinnacle in the uh, list of achievements from Studio One and I want to thank very much Mr Carl Finley uh, calling from Malaga and uh, we're going to be back to Carl definitely our Studio One correspondent uh, throughout the series. Now uh, I will say that at this the two-thirds way uh, point of edition number 19 of Make Me an Island uh, that the last part of today's programme is going to be very different because I'm going to be talking to uh, as I said at the start one of my favourite artists dancer and choreographer Una Doherty about her work on the Jamie XX and uh, girl band videos Uh, but in order to get to that point I want to uh, effectively take a bridge over there and uh, when I'm looking for a bridge uh, very often on this show I turn to Ghana and this time it's the work of Mr. Ebo Taylor. So right at the same period that we leave uh, our, uh, the sound of the gladiators there, mid-1970s, let's skip back to Accra in Ghana. And as you've heard a few times on this series already, uh, my love for that period of uh, music is unbound and uh, unbounded. And um, yeah, there was a, a revolution going on in Ghana at that point. Uh, like I pointed out before, um, uh, the Soul Power concert had happened in the early 70s and loads of other reasons. Uh, but at the point that Ibo Taylor was making this album, the sound of Studio One must have met his ears. I think it's very evident on this magnificent tune, Will You Promise? Oh, 
bridges go, it's pretty spectacular. And as music goes, as good as it gets, I think, as brightly as those fires burned in Kingston, Jamaica in 1975, they did likewise in Accra in Ghana. And that's the magical sound of Ebo Taylor with Will You Promise from an album called My Love and Music. And I give you my word uh, that I will be back for a deeper Make Me an Island investigation of that particular LP. Now, we started off our investigations here on Make Me an Island number 19, listening to some African rhythms uh, in Caribbean music, and uh, we've turned full circle right there with the direct influence of Jamaican music on African sounds and all, without saying the word incredible, incredibly enough. <laughs> now, well, there is... Um, no direct link as such, apart from the year of their making, 1975, between uh, the sound of presenting the Gladiators and the very reggae-influenced sound of Ebo Taylor uh, on uh, My Love and Music. The reason podcasts such as this exist uh, is to make uh, such connections and join the dots between the two. And now that I've confirmed our existence, I want to thank you very much for listening to Make Me an Island, for it is real, and also uh, someone who is real, uh, my production uh, samurai Ian Cudmore, thanks to you, Ian, and uh, and thanks, in fact, uh, to everybody who has supported the program thus far and the project on uh, on Patreon, and uh, that help has been uh, very much a lifeline and uh, reassuring in all sorts of ways. Now, I want to uh, introduce the third and final part of the show by jumping off this bridge and onto the planet Jamie XX. Here we go into the modern world. We go in the final stretch. And uh, if you were doing your homework, you don't often get homework on Make Me an Island, but um, so if you got a chance to watch the new video for the Jamie XX I Don't Know tune, you'll have seen Una Doherty in action. And uh, Una, she doesn't make music, but she definitely says a lot about music and the way she dances and uh, incredibly expressive form of communication. And uh, I was really delighted when I reached out to her, having seen this video, and she came back to me and we we're going to have a chat about this and Girl Band in just a little while on Jamie XX. I will say that I've been a fan of his productions since the very start. He started out a young pup, he's still a young pup. Uh, but after a five-year hiatus, back with the magnificent I Don't Know. And uh, I think as well might be a good point to recommend his latest Essential Mix, uh, which uh, he released a couple of weeks ago on BBC. And the skills the man has when it comes to the vibecraft of DJing. You know, there's no actual successor, I think, to the governor, Andy Weatherall, but he's a contender for sure. So on that, I'm just going to hand you over. I don't know. Una Darty's on the line.
That was The Amazing I Don't Know by Jamie XX. And I do know that Una Doherty is on the line. And Una, uh, your work on that video is just exceptional. It's no surprise knowing your work up to now, but how did it come about? Um, I was doing a solo. I have a dance solo called Hope Hunt, um, where I'm like, I was doing that in a small theatre called The Yard in London for a run for the Dance Umbrella Festival. Um, and I think Kias from the Young Turks came to see the solo and he really liked it. So then he said to Jamie, come and watch it. And they watched it. And then they were like, do you want to do a music video for Jamie? And and the, the process then that kind of led to where it ended up, um, you did some work with uh, some people in Belfast and sent it on to him. And uh, so that the evidence of those kind of trials or, or test runs are online as well. Yeah, so first, um, the, I, first Young Turk said to me, first I asked Young Turks, like, do you want me to direct a video? Or do you want me to be a dancer in a video? Because I wasn't sure. And they said that they wanted me to dance in the video. And is there any directors that I wanted to work with? And I said that I was really into, um, fucking what's his name now? Um, oh, it's it's Lindstrom, is it? Or what's his name? Uh, Johannes Lindstrom. Yeah. 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 Like, it's a crazy video. Um, and so they hooked me up with Johannes Lindstrom, who's part of the Iconoclast yeah. directors. And um, he wrote a treatment and stuff. And so I asked a couple of my friends. The Mac gave me a wee uh, studio for free. Yeah. And I said, "Is I asked a couple of friends. I said, I've no money for you, but will you come in one night and let me just teach you some movement? Because I thought maybe I might show up to this film set and there might be like hundreds of extras and I'm going to have to teach them some movement. I need to be prepared because I wasn't really sure what was happening. Mm-hmm of what I was expected to do. So I was just trying to be as prepared as possible. If I just have to dance, it's fine. But also if there's a couple of others and I need to immediately start choreographing that I was ready to go because it's kind of like a big gig for me. Mm-hmm. So a couple of friends came up and I just taught them a little bits just to try and send to Ioannis to be like, because it's hard to kind of plan a three-day shoot when you're not in the same room. So I was just throwing mm-hmm. stuff at them, hoping that I, you know they wouldn't fire me, basically. Yeah. Um, so I sent them, and then I got really drunk in the house one night, like, and I got like, yeah, and I wrote a big like love letter to Jamie to like, because then so I'm being a bit complicated. So then in the end, they were like, don't let's not use you, Anis. Why don't you and Luca just make a little film the way you normally do? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a big you know shoot with helicopters and stuff in Eastern Europe. Let's just keep it simple. I think it needs to be in Belfast. Mm-hmm. So then I got really drunk and I sent a letter to Jamie with some of the footage because I was like, well, that footage is not going to be needed now because it's just me dancing on my own. It's not group work. Mm-hmm. But I think it's good for you to see these people having a boogie to the track because it's kind of nice anyway. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, oh, this is, they really liked it. And they said, well, you and Luca go and make your music video, but can, can we use this footage and use it for social media as a kind of background for the video? Mm-hmm. And because the video is really dark, it's a bit kind of like it has a bit of sadness in it and it's shot very darkly and then the the guys dancing at the Mac and all the people dancing on their iPhones is very joyful and like the track kind of has those two sides to it because it's a bit rough even though it's good crack that track you know absolutely the uh, just on the track itself um 
the 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 actual choreography in the video, the dark one shot in Belfast at night. So, you you mentioned uh, about that the kind of uh, the technique there is that you're hitting the beat and that there's a lot of uh, frustration and in those kind of physical mannerisms. Um, is that something that that uh, was very obvious that that you should bring to the work once you heard it, or or is it something that you develop over time how to react? Yeah, no, I think that's. Um, I think I knew that's why they asked me because they came to see my. The idea for me to do the video came from them watching my Hope Hunt solo. Yeah, and that's the way I make choreography anyway. Is like um, the emotion comes first, and then rhythm is consequential to the emotion rather than the other way around. Okay. So it's it's my movement is made through intention rather than aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what they were into when they saw the solo, because the solo is very emotional as well. Um, so I, I kind of understand, like, yeah, I don't know. I suppose I've been doing it long enough now that if someone asked me to do a job, I think that's what they're asking for. Mm-hmm. You know, if they want someone really gorgeous with high legs, they're not going to call Una. <laughs> if they want someone to be raging and upset, then yeah. they call Yeah. But but that that instinctive reaction, I mean, uh, it's incredible to to see such a thing because, I guess, when you're talking about the dancers with the high legs and etc., there is something very unaffected and uh, and so believable about what you do. Uh, yeah, I think it's just the same technique as acting. Yeah. That like it, you have to really actually be sad or really actually be angry or really actually be happy and then other people will believe you too yeah. it has to there has to be sincerity in the body and the mind for it to be able to be read clearly mm-hmm. yeah and and in the actual video that that ended up um i read the story in dazed and confused where it's effectively the last video made before a lockdown but maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the actual shoot and how the the finished article came about after taking a break from uh, the elements in East Belfast. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so we um, we had a couple of locations chosen and rough sketches of a narrative of how to make the track work in the background, and but also trying to not be too cliche because it's very easy when someone's dancing in the street to become cliche like you walk past a bit of graffiti and it's like oh it's too much Mm -hmm. you know um so we first we went to this car park which already for me is a bit like oh you're doing a music video in a car park it's already been done but it is a very very beautiful rundown brutalist um car park in belfast so we started shooting there um, because we wanted to incorporate the car and stuff because there's a car in my solo and maybe that should be part of it, like falling out of the boot of a car and stuff. But the, we only got there for like, we was, we only got to set up the camera, to be honest. And then they got, they chucked us out because we didn't have a permit because I've never, like it's only me and Luca. Yeah. And I'm learning how I go, you know, because normally if you have a small camera, you can get away with stuff. But now we have like the red, yeah. things are getting a bit more professional and you have to have like bloody paperwork so we don't have like a producer and things like this mm-hmm. um so then we moved to we did a couple of other like lock the only thing we knew for sure is the emotion the track and it was one lock shot mm-hmm. one shot we were aiming for so we did a few other shots in alleyways we have another beautiful so we've got three versions of the film there's another film gorgeous was shot that day down an alleyway in the cathedral court in belfast and just by chance, three three young lads, like three smicks, 
just walk up the middle of the alleyway midway in the track and don't even look at the camera don't even register us it's just perfect <laughs> it's like a chorus yeah wow. but in and then in the end we went for this um evening shot it was kind of our last chance because also there's a little bit of the harland and wolf cranes there's a little bit of a mural um kind of little um flags for people not from belfast to be like oh that's belfast because mm-hmm. i think that's also what young turks were looking for something that you could tell where where in the world it was mm-hmm. uh, and so we ended up going to the east belfast place because we knew that um those streets from a film me and luke had done before with Cara Holmes called a bright limbo um and uh yeah it started raining we stayed in my friend's house and then that's where we got the idea to be like Janie can you come and have a hug at the end it will give us a conclusion we waited for the rain to finish and then you just have to you just have to do it be like I think we have half an hour not raining just keep going and try mm-hmm. it because it's when it's a lock shot you just have to pray you know yeah so so how many times did you actually do uh and, and by lock shot you mean that it's one continuous take right Sorry, yeah, lock shot's not the right term, really, isn't oh, oh, it? It's no, well, one you, shot. Yeah, one shot. But um, so when you, when you, how many times did you actually do the the actual? Because I mean, the, the the physical nature of the performance. Yeah, must I think that, that one. We, oh man, I was fucked. It was absolutely freezing, and we've been going from eight in the morning. Yeah. So so some of that, you know, like how do you get the emotion from? Like I was really tired and yeah. really raging. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so I'm you... not even a good actor. I'm just a moody bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this case, it's uh, it yeah, so beautiful. Does does it be um, Una? Is it a case in point that we'll say that period where you have to break because it's raining? Um, there are a lot of elements in in East Belfast, but when you're when you're taking a break and you don't know what what's going to happen, and then this opportunity, sort of the clouds part, and then this opportunity, is that something that you're you're well used to in terms of? your creative practice that you kind of have to sometimes hold the fort and wait for the clouds to disappear? Well, I mean, I'm starting to get better at it and understand it more the more film that I make. Yeah. I think that's a particular location film thing. I mean, I'm, I've, start, I've made a few films now, but I'm going to make more and it just takes practice because film's expensive. You can't yeah. be making a film every month, right? Yeah. Um, but I'm lucky. I'm, my team, I was with Luca and his friend, who I'm going to forget his name now, a brilliant photographer from Dublin. I can write, type you his name afterwards yeah. or something. Um, and they've done a lot of photo shoots around the world and loads of films. So they're like seasoned professionals at this and know how to not get annoyed, not tired and stay calm. Yeah. So they were really used to it of like, we have an idea. We've got to mm. two in the morning. Let's see if we can make it happen kind of thing. In dance, not so much. Like, you know, dancing tends to be indoors a bit more in my experience. But yeah. um, but, but just on that point, um, the first show that I saw you in was Hope Hunt and the Ascension into Lazarus and, and you arrived in the car. And uh, so, I mean... That's the, that's the show that um, the young Turks saw. came to see me in. That's the yeah. one I'm talking about. Well, well I, can, yeah. I can totally understand how Jamie XX would immediately want you in a video after seeing that show. But um, so that was the first time I saw you perform. And, and what was really striking among the many striking things was the idea of completely taking it outside of, of the dance, um, you know, the setting, the, the theatre, the lights and all of those things. And uh, so I, I, I just assume that, that the music video format is 
uh, a very interesting crossover one for you because it gets you to yeah, perform in, in all those different spaces and kind of suits uh, the kind of work that you're doing. Would, you, would that be a bit, uh, would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think the character in Hope Hunt, the hunter, I call him, who's mm-hmm. like the smick, like I know it's derogatory, derogatory term, but like the knacker, like like just the lab with his tracksuit on, looking yeah. for an E, like, like yeah, to to go into like a, a shiny black, the project art center, is ridiculous. Yeah, you know, those fellas are not in the project art center. Yeah. Um, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I saw something very interesting. So the, so the idea, so to do it out in the street makes sense. The fact that that hunter, that character goes into the theatre is the ridiculous bit. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. And um, and and that work then fed into uh, Hard to Be Soft, the Belfast Prayer, which I saw in the Abbey last year. And um, so I, I, the the kind of gender politics that. Uh, are very much a feature in that. Um, I've, I've, I've read you say that that was kind of accidental in the sense that the parts were written for lads originally. So Hope Hunt was made on a, on a guy called Neil Brown. He's from Glasgow, brilliant yeah. dancer. And that, that solo was made on Neil. Yeah. And he was brilliant in accents. And that's where all the accents came in Hope Hunt because Neil was just a legend of accents. And then Neil got another job and we already had a show booked the costume was bought, so I just put gel in my hair and put his costume on and started doing it. And then everyone was like, oh, she's a gender artist. <laughs> it's because my dancer left. Yeah, okay, and yeah. the, the, fet, the solo at the end of Hard To Be Soft was made for the amazing dancer Ryan O'Neill mm-hmm. from Belfast, who's like one of the best male dancers in Ireland. Like, And then um, he got a bloody job with Punch Dunk, so I just put his costume on. <laughs> so accidental in, in, in more ways than one. Um... Accidental, but then I have you have to... But then... It is true that there's something does become very theatrical and heightened when a woman plays a man or where a man plays a woman, like yeah. it's almost Shakespeare shit. Like. Yeah, yeah. Um, just to go back to the actual the, the, the performance in I Don't Know, uh, Una. Um, so uh, in, in, in hitting the beat, right, um, I mean, there's uh it it seems like it just it, it look what you're doing looks like the sound is that fair enough is that what you're trying to oh, achieve there? that's brilliant Thank it really you. does i i've watched it enough times to to yeah it really does and that was really tricky i mean i would if i had a chance again me and luca would film it a few more times because yeah. we only got three runs at that that night yeah and um, I mean, I'm on it, but there's a few kind kind of notes that I'm sure Jamie'd see that I missed. Yeah. You just have to you have to keep going and try it because because it's such a sporadic polyrhythm track. Yeah. You know, it's not four and eight count all the time. There's some random mm-hmm. bangs in there, and trying to sometimes I hit it and sometimes I missed it. Mm-hmm. Just on the random bangs, um, isn't it just on the on the music alone? Um, isn't there's something really special about his productions. I, I assume you, you believe that. Oh man, I'm a super fan. Like, yeah, like I've teach, I've been teaching a dance workshop around Duke now for about, geez, probably like five years now. Yeah. And um, I taught um, some of the class was to Oh My Gosh. And I was teaching dance to Oh My Gosh by Jamie for five years. Yeah. You know, to the point where I had to apologise to the workshops. Like, I'm still using this track. It's not going away. Mm-hmm. So, of course, when, like, Young Turks rang and said Jamie's into it, I was like, what the fuck? That's <laughs> so bad. I've been dancing for such a long time. Yeah. Yeah, he really makes you move, like. 
Yeah. And and in this and it's so modern and so brave what he does, right? Eyes oh, genius. It's really beautiful. Um, let's just jump on to another piece of music uh, which you've made yet another inspiring video to um, to Shoulder Blades and Girl Band. How did that come about, Una? Oh my God! So Girl Band is like I have to be honest. They eh? I didn't had never heard a Girl Band. Yeah. I didn't know who they were before, and then I met this guy called Bob Gallagher. Yeah, great filmmaker. And Bob Gallagher is from Dublin, and he makes all the music videos and all. Bob's like really good director. I think Bob must have seen me in Hard to Be Soft at the Abbey or something. You know, oh, yeah. he must have saw me somewhere, and then had an idea for me to dance in the Shoulder Blades video. So we spent three days choreographing in a studio. And Bob directed me and choreographed me. Yeah. Um, and we worked on that, and then we had a one-day shoot. Over the, the thing, o- and uh, over the course yeah. of those three days, I mean, um, it's it's an incredibly dense piece of music, very different to Jamie XX. So, the process of of looking for it to look like the sound, I mean. It must be quite difficult when when the music is that challenging, as, as amazing as it is, it's challenging. For me, Shoulder Blades was much more difficult than Jamie because there's lyrics yeah. to ke- take in consideration, consideration as well as the rhythm, uh, and then as well as the characterization, and then as as well as your relationship spatially to the camera's movement. The the, the whole because it's a duet. Then the, there's all this. We had a techno crane on set for that job, so there's like. It's complicated to try and hit your mark in relation to the techno crane, keep the emotion, mm-hmm. be on time, mm-hmm. and try and lip, lip sync a little bit at the same time. Like, yeah. And also the guy, I can't remember his name, who's the singer of Girl Band, like he has this, yeah, his way of singing the lyrics is a really unusual tone, the way yeah. he lets the, the words fall out of his mouth. So yeah. trying to hook on to that. Yeah, um, it's in between yeah, so for singing. For me, that one and, was more challenging. Yeah, yeah. And, and when it comes to the technical aspects, right? Um, so the difference between performing to an audience and to a camera, how do you, how do you find that? Oh man, it's mental. It's mental. Like it's, I find it very difficult. Um, it's very difficult, and at the same time, it's very simple yeah. because it's to do with like everything's just to do with fear. It's actually the same job. You just have to be obsessed with the black hole within the camera. Yeah. And you have to send your chi into that and be aware of the space between you and that and play with that. And that's the most interesting bit. And I always get it by like the last take, but the first couple of takes in a room with the cameraman and also you have a few other people standing around. I just get a bit nervous sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it just takes a bit of practice. You have to get used to it. And um, there's also some things learning, like on camera, you have to kind of do much less than when you're on stage. Because when you're on stage, people are able to take in 360 the flesh of the body. So they're able to see that the movement travels from the toe up diagonal through the armpit and out the fingernails. They'll be able to take that all in, but that won't read on a camera. Yeah, yeah. That's funny, isn't it? There's... I was reading something the other day about uh, what the camera can do. You know, it can't cope with rain. Uh, I think it was in the film It's a Wonderful Life. They put milk in the rain 
that they were using uh, special effects in order to see it. But the camera is mm. also, when it comes to dance, right, just what you said there about the movement of the body, or the, how the body moves in its complete state, that the camera is, uh, it's just getting a part of it at any one point. But I guess that's that involves you realizing that and, and, and adjusting accordingly. Yeah, and watching the good thing, like working with Luca, is because we're such we're so tight in our creation. Is at any point it's okay for uh, for me to go behind the camera and see the last shot. Yeah, and if you see the last shot, it's it's different usually from an audience perspective on the movement, you know. Yeah. And then if you see what's actually being seen, you're like, oh right, they're not seeing my knee. They're only seeing the arm. Okay, yeah. forget about your leg work. Let's go into the arms, and then you would. Do- adjust what is accentuated at that moment if you mm-hmm. know what I mean and, and so it does alter does sort sense? of the effect of the gesture I mean in terms of yeah there being a camera there being an audience that web of emotions that the gesture creates it's uh, it's different when you're directing it into that little black hole as you say I guess so yeah I mean I couldn't I don't think I can speak that eloquently on it yet because I haven't practiced enough I need a few more films yeah yeah, well, I can't to wait going. to see. What... I need to keep make a few more to be like, you know. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next. So, listen, just one last point, Una. Um, something again that I that I saw you say, very interesting yeah. point about movement and how, you know, in the give and receive idea of of there being sort of an exchange involved, and that you know, in the movement, uh, there's something that can be reflected in the conversation, like what we're having now, the give and take involved in that exchange. Is that something that, that kind of conundrum, is that what interests you in terms of, of your work? Is that is that a point that of, of reference for all your work? I guess so. Um, I guess so. I think, I mean, the thing is, it's like, like even in a, in, if you make a show or you make a film and all, you've got to be like very true and very sincere to your your internal narrative, yeah. the intention, like why you're sweating, who you're sweating for, and do it. But then you also have to kind of be a bit zen and open up and realise that the viewer, their um, understanding of that narrative is in relation to the, the past of their own body and their flesh, mm-hmm. which might differ slightly from the initial intention and so that's where the conversation is how is the how is the story read you know because it's all in context of your own body and your own understanding your own emotions mm-hmm. so that's the most interesting bit no matter what you plan and what you think it's about someone might come back like a week later and be like oh i saw bloody blah in it or i yeah. saw this in it or mm-hmm. it reminded me of that and it's different from the initial intent and that's that's tasty i think yeah you learn from that Absolutely. And also, I guess it, it depends on the openness of, of both the performer and the viewer in many, in many ways, too. Oh, yeah. 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 And Una, People can just... think it's crap and not see anything in it, too. That's always a possibility. Don't yeah. Know. Oh, always a possibility for sure. Una, so what's the, um, in, in the immediate short term, what's the, you, you've just done Lady Magma, which is a show you choreographed yourself. You didn't dance in it, no? No, so Lady Magma's, um, I, I am in it in some ways. I kind of, I, what I was doing was I was get, getting all the people together in the bar, in the theatre. Yeah. And then with the microphone, the show. I give them the show and I give them um, a Negroni, you know, a really strong cocktail. Yeah. And I basically shout at them for like 20 minutes. I give them a big speech in a kind of Tony Robbins 
style of like, come on, like, yeah. get into it. Because right. I was inspired by like the cults of America and I was trying to be like our show from yeah. Wild Wild Country. Be like, this is a sacred place. You're going to come see women dance about femininity, like get your shit together. Yeah. And then we bring them into the theatre and it's a ritual of these five women kind of with David Holmes made this kind of sexy, funkadelic 1970s Max Roach drum solo music for them. And they just drag themselves out of the ground like lava until they start throwing themselves around screaming like Dionysus. Wow. It sounds Because I think it's important for women, to be, for, for people to watch women being very sexy and very grotesque and very powerful at the same time. Because mm-hmm. I think we're sold women kind of as um, quite safe and a bit pretty. And I think it's good to see them as huge, powerful yeah. beasts too. Yeah. And has Lady Magma, is it is it still touring or has that run ended? Um, no, well, it was, everything's been cancelled now. Like all my tours has been cancelled. So it was supposed to be in the Pompidou Centre. Yeah. Um, we just did France. And I think it will come back next year. There's tours. It was supposed to be in the Dublin Dance Festival now. Yeah. So yeah. Um, we're waiting to see if things come back next year. That, that had only just been born and it was just starting its tour. So yeah. hopefully that will back um, I'm doing a radio show for De- uh, Dublin Dance Festival soon to talk about Magma I, I wrote a book for Magma Amazing. with collaboration with Aoife McGrath the writer from Queen's University so we're going to talk about the book and then I'm also going to release two unreleased tracks that David uh, made for the show that never made it to the show mm-hmm. uh, so we'll do that kind of digital version of it for now and then I'm hoping fingers crossed that eventually when it does come back. I've got 10 performers in it now that I'd like to do it in the woods, actually more than the theatre. I think the theatre doesn't really serve Lady Magma very well. I've done one performance of it in the woods, and I think if everyone comes to the woods mm-hmm. in the summer and gets drunk and maybe smokes a bit of weed, and then we do Lady Magma, that's how it should play. <laughs> it sounds like the ideal situation. And uh, I think, Una, it's fair to say that there's... Um, breaking down barriers and and changing the whole perception is part of what you do and I can't wait to uh, see what happens next so I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on Make Me an Island. Oh thanks Donal, thank and, you. Uh, and we're going to play out with, uh, so watch out for Lady Magma as part of the Dublin Dance Festival so that's going to be in the in the shape of, uh, what did you say, a radio? I mean I think it's an interview. Yeah okay okay, like this, something like this I yeah. Think- and if it's not, if it's a written interview, then what I'll do is I'll just release online yeah. somewhere the track so people can hear David. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we, we've we've achieved uh, the impossible and uh, making dance interesting on the radio, I think. So it's uh, obviously uh, it's, it's a challenge, <laughs> right? Dancing about architecture, talking about music. Uh, Una Doherty, we're going to play out with Girl Band. Thank you so much. This is Shoulder Blades. Yeah. All right. Cheerio. See you, Una. Bye. Thank you. Bye.
Frankie Ray. Talking all those ways. It's too late. Thank you.